From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you checking us out on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey, to each one of you who take the Conspiracy Show with you wherever you go on your mobile device via the Conspiracy Show app. And of course, how do to those of you listening and watching uh, via the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. We're at uh, 14,608 subscribers. Uh, so if you haven't already, hit that red sub button. Be sure to tell a friend to subscribe. Hello to everyone in the YouTube live chat as well. However and wherever you're listening or watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. John Potash is with us for the duration. His book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, originally released in 2015, is now a feature-length documentary film. And uh, John is here telling us how he believes the CIA has declared war against rock, uh, against musicians and activists. Uh, John, in, in hour one, you were telling us uh, the, the difference uh, with how uh, the controllers of, of artists were handled in Britain versus the United States. Just sort of clarify and, and compare and contrast the two. Well, it appears that um, in the United States, there was a bit more control over the music industry and a bit more uh, control over the artists and manipulation of the artists. Um, MKUltra was a vastly bigger project than uh, what was happening in England, but it was pretty big in England, too, but it was with the Tavistock Institute. And um, and Marshall McLuhan, I think, you know, uh, talks about that with John Lennon. But uh, I don't get into that as much with my book. Um, but, I, you know, maybe in a future film I'll get more into that. But I think you did great work with, you know, what you showed your film about John Lennon regarding that, Richard. But... Um, in in England, the John Lennon and uh, you know Mick Jagger and Brian Jones uh, were a little more independent than a lot of the uh, top musicians in the United States. Um, it, you know, I think people surrounded uh, Bob Dylan and got him. You know, they were he was doing lots of drugs, and I think he he became less independent, became more brain addled by all the drugs he was doing. And uh, some people think that his motorcycle accidents right after his two biggest um, you know, albums, uh, bring it all back home, or I think it was, or um, I forget the other one now, uh, but, you know, uh, Highway 61 Revisited and all, um, really messed him up, and he was doing lots of painkillers and, and then became a heroin act. But but um, most of the musicians in the United States uh, appear to have been more manufactured and manipulated, and, you know, they reached the top, whereas the Stones were a little less manipulated and so were the Beatles, even though they were manipulated. I think John Lennon said he was anti-war from the start. Um, Brian Jones and Mick Jagger were anti-war from the start and uh, said they started attending rallies. But, um, you know, of course, they they were all targeted. Now, Lennon appeared to, when, uh, you know, he met Marshall McLuhan, as you pointed out, in Canada around 68 or 69. He was really clued into how he was being manipulated and became much more outspoken in his uh, anti-war activism and uh, also his civil rights activism in support of the Black Panthers around 1970 or so, you know, inviting uh, Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Black Panthers nationally, and when 
uh, talk show that he was allowed to like kind of co-host for a week. So, um, so he really broke out some of some of that manipulation, and uh, but at the same time, um, you know, uh, a lot of their work, you know, was contained. And when he broke out of the manipulation, he his work wasn't didn't seem to be as promoted as big as when he was, you know, uh, a little more controlled with the Beatles and all. But um, you know, so that's just some of the the way it worked seemed to work. Now let's start. Let's talk about uh, Brian Jones. Uh, who supposedly drowned in his swimming pool yeah. uh, in July of 1969. Now, he had been kicked out of the, the Rolling Stones several weeks prior. Uh, Keith and, and Mick uh, traveled down to his uh, estate and uh, to let him know he was out of the band. Here's the founder of the Rolling Stones being uh, being fired from his own group, really. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, he shows up dead two weeks later. Now, he had been... He'd been let go because, by all accounts, he simply he couldn't function in the studio anymore. He he um, he liked to drink and he liked to, to pop pills, by all accounts. So, yeah. do you? But, but you argue that Brian Jones was targeted for assassination. Why? Yeah, he was really the founder of the Rolling Stones. He was the most talented musician in the Rolling Stones, by all accounts, and. Um, and so, yeah, he was separated from the Stones through legal charges the same way they got uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards under the thumb legally. That I argue they did the same thing to Brian Jones. And so they, they had to separate temporarily because they wouldn't give Brian Jones a visa to come to the United States when the Rolling Stones were doing their United States tour in 1969. Now, um, A.E. Hotchner wrote the oral history of the Rolling Stones with his book Blown Away. As I said, that was Hemingway's editor, and is a great writer. And so Hotchner says, and uh, is backed up by many much evidence, that Jones sobered up. He, he was very anti-war and very activist. He called his friends Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon and said, "In 1969, you want to form a new group?" And they tentatively said, "Yes, you know, we'd like to form a group with you." And so that would have been an incredible activist supergroup because all three of them were, were into activism at that time, anti-war activism, civil rights activism, and all. And so uh, it was just after that that he got the, the tentative agreements from Hendrix and John Lennon to form the supergroup that he is drowned in his own swimming pool. And, you know, they say he, he accidentally drowned, but uh, Hotchner uh, quotes eyewitnesses who said, you know, um, we we came back from getting something in you know going from the town and came back to his house and there was all of a sudden a party there when there wasn't supposed to be a party there at his house and uh, there was guards not people not letting us in the you know, house and we had to go around the back and uh, we spy from the woods you know uh, someone getting drowned in in the swimming pool by a few men and somebody quickly you know comes out of the bushes where we were and says. You better get out of here, um, or, or you'll be next. And identifies uh, this guy by name. He was a member of the Guinness uh, beer family, actually. I forget his uh, name off the top of my head, but and so he quotes him, uh, you know, witnessing Jones being drowned by a few men. And uh, and so actually in the film, um, I had gotten footage, and uh, sorry that this was a cut at the last minute. I had to cut out this uh, Brian Jones section of it, but um, hopefully there's going to be a director's cut down the road where I can get it back in. Uh, where I have the Rolling Stones tour manager saying one film in a documentary that um, one of the guys who actually 
to you know drown Brian Jones, said on his deathbed, you know, that he had helped kill Brian Jones. And so, um, yeah, he was murdered. And um, and the fact that it was so covered up, it's just yet one more sign that yes, this was an intelligence operation. Well, there was a theory that uh, there were. Uh, he was always arguing with um, the uh, the tradespeople. He had tradespeople at his house constantly renovating this sprawling estate that was yeah. once owned by the uh, uh, the author of uh, the Winnie the Pooh. Was it A.A. Yeah. A. Milne? The A.A. Milne estate. The count is that he couldn't get rid of them. These were people that he was trying to get rid of, and they would not leave his estate, and he couldn't get rid of them. And yes, you know, the best evidence is that they, he couldn't get rid of them because they were hired to set things up for his murder. Do you um, think that, that, that this was also um, a warning shot and a message being sent to Mick Jagger? Did he, was oh, yeah. he aware, was he aware of it? Yes, I definitely think it was a warning shot. I mean, Keith Richards said, um, it was like, uh, it was like JFK's assassination. You just couldn't get to the bottom of it. And he says, Brian Jones was an excellent swimmer. He's seen him swim in waves up to here, you know, uh, like in terrible ocean, you know, weather. He, he could swim anywhere. He was an incredible swimmer. And so it was definitely a warning because, um, you know, there was an attempt to, there was uh, death threats against Mick Jagger. Um, there was, uh, I argue that the Audemont scene, when I, you know, I, I you know, just examined it incredibly closely, uh, it was a murder attempt. A guy actually. Uh, you know, stepped up on that stage with a gun in his hand, and that's on footage. Um, and as, as messed up as, as those Hell's Angels were, because they were incredibly messed up and they did horrible things, uh, one of the guys was messed up and didn't realize he wasn't supposed to stop that murder attempt, but he did. He stopped that murder attempt, killed the guy who, who stepped up on the stage with a gun in his hand, and um, and then he was uh, later killed uh, himself. But, um, yeah, that, that was, you know, there was uh, death threats from other people. I mean, um, death threats from the head of the Oakland uh, Hells Angels, who uh, it was documented, you know, someone's actually said in court that we contracted the Hells Angels. This was a uh, ATF agent, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agent. So we contracted um, the head of the, the Oakland Hells Angels, Sonny Barger, to a murder Eldridge Cleaver and Cesar Chavez, the head of the... Uh, farm workers movement, the migrant farm workers movement. And so, you know, it just shows that these guys were, were part of, of operations like that, you know, with, to put some distance between the intelligence community and the actual assassinations. Now, Jimi Hendrix, an American artist, but he dies in England. In fact, he had to go to England uh, in order to uh, really become famous. He wasn't, yeah. you know, he was hanging out in Greenwich Village. He wasn't really getting it done, but then he was discovered by... Uh, I, b- I believe one of the uh, Chaz Chandler from the Animals. Right. Uh, he took him over to England. They hooked up with I think it was Kit Lambert, who was uh, the Who's manager and uh, or, or producer. And uh, he really found his initial success in England, and of course that's where he died uh, in 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 1970. Now, yeah, um, it's definitely part of the Amer- you know, American racism that couldn't have him, you know, you know be so famous here in the United States. But once he gets to England, he's recognized as, I think, I argue there's a bit less racism because of the history of of England. And so he becomes a superstar incredibly quickly in England. And so Chaz Chandler couldn't even handle all the uh, fame and touring that, you know, a lot of people that wanted to 
book him and uh, in, into his life becomes Mike Jeffrey. And Mike Jeffrey is, uh, he says he's former MI6 and, you know, he worked for, you know, the top biographies of Jimi Hendrix shows that Mike Jeffries had worked for uh, military intelligence in Britain. And MI6 is the British version of the CIA. So Mike Jeffries uh, show all the evidence that he never really left the, C- the uh, MI6, that he continued to work undercover for MI6, and uh, proceeded to manipulate uh, Hendrix's career in a huge way. Now, you know, Hendrix was a superstar. He was incredibly talented. He was, you know, obviously a musical genius. And um, so he pushes drugs on him like crazy. And so Hendrix started doing more and more drugs. But at the same time, uh, there was a point where he just said, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm leaving acid out. I'm not trying any other drugs. He only, he might have tried heroin, according to the top biographers, like Cesar and Glebic, he tried heroin once, he tried maybe cocaine once, didn't touch it again, didn't like it. And um, in 1968, he wasn't very, he wasn't that political. But when in 1968, when the when uh, MLK was assassinated, he was really upset, and he got started getting very political. And he started dedicating albums to the Black Panthers. He talked about them in interviews, and uh, started say, you know developing anti anti war projects. And his his wife, his fiancée, Monica Danneman, documents that in her book and says how uh, Mike Jeffrey um, basically dosed his drink. I mean, yeah, Hendrix thought that Jeffrey dosed his drink with uh, loads of acid right before an um, uh, anti-war concert he was doing and messed up his guitar playing because he hadn't done acid in a while. He had given up acid for a long time at that point, and um, another time planted drugs on him in an airport and got him in legal trouble with that. And then That was here in a, Toronto. That was yeah, here in right, Toronto. exactly, yeah. And and the, he got off. I mean, he would have done a long stretch, probably 20 years, but he got off. The, they didn't find any drug, uh, um, was it, they didn't have any drug paraphernalia yeah, uh, I, on him, but they found the drugs, but no drug paraphernalia. So Mike Jeffrey supposedly planted that. Yes. Jeffrey, uh, Hendrix thought that Jeffrey planted that on him to control him more. And uh, then he actually had Mafia kidnap him, and Jeffrey uh, pretended to have bigger Mafia get him out, out, out from after several days being kidnapped just because Hendrix couldn't stand Jeffrey anymore and was trying to get rid of him, was trying to fire him, but, but really couldn't get out of the contract. And uh, finally, when, when Hendrix fires Mike Jeffrey, within 48 hours, uh, Hendrix is dead. And the um, you know he, he Jeffrey actually ended up admitting to a roadie who just came out with the book within the last five or ten years, saying that Je- when Jeffrey was committed, he had Hendrix killed. And another producer uh, actually said that when he was drunk, he also admitted to him that he had Hendrix killed. And so, who can do that? Have someone killed within forty-eight hours of being fired? You you have some hit team just come in and kill Hendrix? It's just obviously, you know, uh, that, that and loads more evidence show that Jeffrey was working for British intelligence in collaboration with the FBI that had him under daily surveillance. Um, and so, you know, they, they collaborated to kill Hendrix because Hendrix was getting very political and it was, was threatening to both promote sobriety because he was sobering up and, and left-wing politism, anti, you know, anti-war uh, politics and, and uh, anti-war activism. Well, the, the other theory is, though, that, that because Mike Jeffrey was owing the mob a lot of money, because Hendrix and Jeffrey together had bought 
uh, electric, um, uh, electric lady studios in New York had to be refurbished. They owed the mob a lot of money. Now all of a sudden Hendrix is threatening to fire Mike Jeffrey. Jeffrey's going to be ho- left holding the bag with all this debt owed to the mob. And so by staging Hendrix's death, making it look like it was accidental, an accidental, well, he supposedly asphyxiated on his own vomit after taking barbiturates, but this huge um, insurance settlement basically allowed Jeffrey to pay off his huge debt to the mob. You don't want to be owing money to the mob. I mean, yeah, I isn't it possible theory. that that's the you. motive? I hear and, you, that's a theory, but... When you look at so many of these deaths, um, look at Kurt Cobain's death that was made to look like a suicide, and you look at a number of these artists and the way they died, it just, you know, there's always, uh, they always have a cover-up, you know, theory, a cover-up reason, and uh, yet when you look at, at his life and all the evidence that he was uh, doing, all the things that, that intelligence operatives do with offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands, um, you know, he could speak Russian fluently. He, he was um, obviously inserted. You know, and the things he did to Hendrix with the uh, setting him up with cocaine, the dosing him with acid to not do and trying to get him not to do any um, activist, you know, concerts ever. Um, the way he, he uh, would book them one night in the East Coast and the next night on the West Coast, back and forth in the East Coast again to really mess him up. He was obviously trying to mess up Hendrix and his career and manipulate him and control him in uh even though you know he's he uh he booked a lot of his concerts he was really he set him up with the monkeys he was touring with the monkeys it's just all kinds of things that were just absurd that had nothing to do with mafia nothing to do with anything else but uh messing up Hendrix and controlling him and stopping him from activism and things like that Almost a form of mind control, just the way that he drove him to the point of exhaustion. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, yeah. you look at his tour schedule, there was no rhyme or reason. He would be, as you say, hip-hopping back and forth, crisscrossing the United States instead of going up and down one coast. Right. And then, you know, taking some time off, he was constantly going back and forth. Yeah. Um and then when he when he dies, we have the uh, the attending physician at the hospital where he was taken, reporting all of this wine in Hendrix's hair, in his clothes. Yeah. It was in his lungs, uh, but it wasn't in his stomach, as if he had been waterboarded with red wine. Right, right. And there's so many discrepancies about the you know the reason for his death, the time of his death. And uh, Jeffries um, warned his you know, Monica Danum, and um, first she, he stole her script about a book about Hendrix. Um, her first copy of her book with, was out. With, you know, she had finished it within a few years of Hendrix's death, with reporting all of the uh, official discrepancies that, that went on, and, and, and all these different ways there were problems with all the, you know, uh, with the kind of uh, investigation of Hendrix's death on the official level, and uh, they basically said that, that he there's no reason you have the amount of uh, kind of medication he had in the system for sleeping pills shouldn't have killed him. So they don't know why exactly he died. And so, um, you know, according to the official coroner's report, so, yeah, there's a lot of foul play, a whole lot of foul play just, in you know, officially just beyond Mike Jeffrey. And so. 
And and uh, Monica Daneman, uh, who was with them at the time, well, she skipped out at, at, at one point. She said she went out for cigarettes, and when she came back, he was dead. Uh, so how, did they get her in on this as well? Well, I don't know, and there's a lot of questions about that, a lot of different theories about that. All I can say is that when she came out with her book finally, years later, after she was war- you got death threats from Jeffries about coming out with her book, after he, you know, it's apparently she reported they stole her manuscript, you know, he he ends up vanishing, supposedly in a plane crash, but um, all they apparently identified him in the plane crash was by jewelry they found of his. Uh, so right. they, think, they think he was just, you know, like given a new cover and sent away to another land, another, another country. But her, she comes out with her book finally, and, and her book is, is an excellent book in terms of talking about all the activism of Jimi Hendrix in the last years of his life. Um, and all the things Jeffrey did uh, to sabotage him and his work um, in the last years of his life, but um, and all these things that, that you know that Jeffrey okay. threatened. But um, she died. John, I got the book. Uh, you got to get uh, a break. I understand. Okay, yeah, we'll take a time out and sure. come back with John Potish. Drugs as weapons against us, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with uh, John Potish. Uh, let's go to the phones. And Richard is joining us. Richard, where are you calling from? I'm from Mississauga. Hey, Richard. Good evening. I have two um, situations that I wanted to speak to you about that sort of uh, work around the CIA and the theme of uh, influential fathers. I've always found it quite comical that the CIA, um, one of the directors of what we would call the world's police force, his son was in a band called The Police, that being Stuart Copeland yeah, yes. and Miles Copeland. Right. And, I, and I often wondered if he ever used the band as a platform to uh, ship things around the world or have uh, roadies as operatives or things like that. And the other one that I considered given how much CIA activity and drugs were involved in the Golden Triangle, uh, it never really got much uh, or, or as much as I would have thought in terms of exposure in that Jim Morrison's father was uh, an influential admiral in the Gulf of Tonkin and the Vietnam, Vietnam Naval Offensive. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I talk about both those things in my book. About the police, yeah, you know, Sting, I argue, was manipulated by Stuart Copeland. Um, and, you know, Miles Copeland Sr. was a CIA architect, and he was majorly involved in their cultural operations. And I argue that his son, Miles Copeland III, I think it was, or Jr., whatever it was, his, you know, Miles Sr.'s son, he owned loads of record labels and, like, record management companies that just managed a lot of bands, including bands I really like. But I argue that he tried to manipulate a lot of those bands through that management company. And Stuart Copeland made the police very big, very fast with his intelligence connections. But him and uh, Sting got into arguments over lyrics because Sting wanted to write his own lyrics and Stuart wanted to control everything. And so there, you know, I didn't hear about any, you know, what they, you know, anything they did nefariously. But I do argue that Stuart Copeland and uh, Miles Copeland, his brother, um, definitely manipulated a lot of things in the music industry themselves. But uh, in terms of the other thing you brought up, um, 
around. Uh, I'm sorry, that was the Gulf of Tulsa. Jim Morrison's Jim father. Jim Morrison's the father. Admiral, yeah. I got a picture of Jim Morrison just before they turned him into this rock star with his father in the in a boat. And yes, his father, uh, was, you know, basically led the boat that caused the Gulf of Tonkin incident that started the Vietnam War. And uh, everyone knows that was a set-up incident. It was a fake incident just to get into the Vietnam War. But, um, you know, uh, I have a section on that argues that he was part of this Laurel Canyon scene that Dave McGowan did a very good book about called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon that uh, was basically a, basically a manufactured scene where you took you got a lot of people connected to the top military like Jim Morrison and, and David Crosby and others that became instant rock stars, top of the charts instantly, uh, without a whole lot of uh, musical talent, believe it or not. But now I think Jim Morrison then rebelled from that kind of manufactured instant rock star, you know, rock stardom place that they put him in and started trying to, you know, blow the whistle a little bit, do his own thing a bit, and so he was done away with because of that. Now, I didn't get a whole lot into him besides just his start, but I think that probably was the case, like these other... Example, but, but he have. was estranged. I mean, I talked to his brother-in-law, mm-hmm. uh, his former brother-in-law, Jim's former brother-in-law, Alan Graham, and Jim was estranged from his parents. He said, my family, they're all dead in one famous interview. Wow. So I don't know how, if there was no real connection between him and his father, how he would have, I guess, been used or manipulated by him. Yeah, it's hard to know what the truth is because a lot of people might say, oh, I have nothing to do with my parents and my family and uh yet that's really what's going on that they were put in place and set up to be these instant stars but again i don't cover jim morrison in my book i just touch on him very briefly about his father i really just talk i focus on uh, john lennon and uh you know kurt cobain tupac shakur and the stones and all that right do you talk about janice joplin at all yeah, so Janis Joplin had a guy who professed to being in a, you know, working for the FBI enter her life early on when she was like known just to be incredibly talented in the San Francisco music scene, but it was no, it was really not known outside the San Francisco music scene, and get her hooked on amphetamines at a young age. And he proposed to her for marriage. They were engaged to get married, and then she found out that he had a wife and family somewhere else. And if you look at his history, his history shows that he had some kind of high-level intelligence connections from the different things he was doing. So that was just one way of the many ways I argue that she was manipulated to get into a lot number of drugs. But then as she was sobering up and trying to get off of heroin um, and going back and forth between sobriety and slipping up, she had agreed to do these major anti-war concerts at Philadelphia's stadium and New York's Shea Stadium. And just before doing these concerts, she announced them on the uh, Dick Cavett show. She ended up getting a heroin that, that killed her. And her sister says, you know, there's lots of rumors that the CIA was behind it, but it's just some of the manipulations of her life and her early death when she was trying to sober up and get more into activism. Now, you don't cover Elvis, as far as I know, but uh, I had author I Steve Ubaney. Oh, I did in my book, yeah. actually, but not, not in the film. You know, just not enough time in the film. But in the book, I mean, this Colonel Tom Parker enters his life when he's 21 years old, gets him using speed and uh, downers constantly, and then gets him drafted in the Korean War. And in 58, he's sent over to Germany, which has the height of MKUltra experiments and activity. And, you know, John Lennon said that people asked him about what they thought about Elvis's death. And he said, to me, Elvis died when he uh, entered the Korean War in 58. After that, he was just like the walking dead.
because Tom Parker completely controlled him thereafter and had surrounded him with people they called the Memphis Mafia. They completely, you know, manipulated him. He wouldn't let him uh, uh, do a live show for about ten years. Uh, wouldn't, you know, had him all do only canned movies. He, he had, they wouldn't let him do a Star Is Born or West Side Story and all these other movie offers he got. And so he was controlled. And do you think Parker was a CIA asset? Because, I mean, he does have a shady past. He apparently, he yeah. killed a man in the Netherlands, came into the United States illegally, somehow got into the army and assumed, I mean, he certainly wasn't named Colonel Tom Parker. He wasn't a colonel. He took the name. He was a colonel in the uh, reserves. But in ah. the reserves, that's where they get lots of special forces, what they call the Green Berets. They use the reserves and the Green Berets for the assassination of Martin Luther King. So lots of intelligence operations, they use the people in the reserves for those operations. And he was a high-level colonel in the reserves, Army Reserves. So, um, you know, it's very interconnected with U.S. intelligence. And so I definitely believe, you know, they had an FBI on Elvis in as early as 1956. You know, he was 21 or 22 years old. So, yes, they definitely were very concerned about Elvis controlling people's hearts and minds. And that's what that's about. That's what the CIA hopes to do. They know... They can't control people physically because, you know, the oligarchs are so outnumbered. They're the, you know, less than 1% and more than 99%, but they have to control our hearts and minds. And their intelligence documents say, and I quote them, I show them in my film and book, that to make people think they're acting in their own interest when they're really acting in the interest of the oligarchs. But then why build him up? I mean, they created him. I mean, yes, he was a huge talent, but the machine got behind Elvis. He was already... Like a, a superstar at 21 years old, he was loved all over the country at such an early age. Um, he was like the first huge rock star. So it's once he was already showing this huge fame around the country, then they, they inserted this Colonel Tom Parker to then manipulate that fame and control that fame. So they controlled his trajectory from there in. And they wouldn't let him do a live show for 10 years. That's what, you know, Parker wouldn't let him do a live show for 10 years. They send him, in the height of his career, they send him over to Germany for two years. You know, in 1958, he was massively controlled. He, he was already a star, and then they inserted someone in, and that's, that was their pattern. These guys were already incredible, you know, musicians or, or actors or singers, and someone's inserted into their life to control them. The same thing happened with Kurt Cobain. Nevermind was already rising up the charts. In the underground, before Nevermind, you know, a lot of us who, who were into underground, you know, this alternative scene, the punk scene and all that, knew of Nirvana. We knew about Bleach. We, you know, it was considered, you know, this great new band with this interesting new sound. And that wasn't a great album, but it was, it was a very unique and interesting album. And we knew, you know, everyone knew that Nirvana was a very talented band. But once Nevermind came out, it was, you know, everyone knew they were going to be superstars because it was rising up the charts incredibly fast. And so into his life comes Courtney Love. And Courtney Love is supposedly dating Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins that day, that night when she met him, and instantly leaves him and hooks on to Cobain and a show that Courtney Love's whole life was bizarre. She was a drug addict and prostitute from a very early age. We'll pick up on the exploits of Courtney and uh, Kurt when we come back. John Potash, my guest. Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the documentary. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us.
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hey, welcome back. John Potash is with us. Drugs as weapons against us. The CIA's war against rock. Musicians, activists. We're focusing really uh, here on uh, on the musicians. We were talking about Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain before the break, John, and... I certainly think that Courtney is a, a manipulative opportunist, but to kill the father of her child and then stage it as a suicide yeah, at what? At the right. behest of the CIA? That's what I argue, yes. Now, in my book, I go into a lot more detail that I can't, I uh, didn't have time to go into in my film, that uh, evidence that she had, um, you know, uh, suffered from dissociative identity disorder, because she said she wrote a letter to her biological father when he, he he lost custody of her when she was about five, five or six years old because uh, her grandparents were the Reese's who had uh, a huge stock in uranium mines and uh, Bosch and Lum, you know, uh, contact lens company and all that, and they were extremely rich and paid off his lawyer to have him lose custody of, of her. But then she uh, wrote him a letter from juvenile uh, detention facility saying, please get me out of here, and um, I've been abused all my life. My my uh, counselors were having sex with me, and she was getting counseling from, by different accounts, between age two and four years old is when she started counseling, which is absurd. But um, her, her own mother's uh, memoir talks about, you know, sending her to counseling at about three years old or four years old. Another memoir says she started at two. Whatever it was, it's incredibly early age, which doesn't even make sense. You don't get counseling at a four, you don't give counseling to a four-year-old. But anyway, and she was getting drugs, medications, and listed the psychohypnotic medications that the doctors were giving to her, the psychiatrists, and those were MKUltra psychohypnotic drugs. And she said that all my, my psychiatrists were also having sex with me as a kid, and that, that is the recipe for developing dissociative disorder or dissociative identity disorder, which used to be called uh, split personality. So there's the argument for that, but all I know is by age 13, when uh, her father did get her out of the juvenile detention facility, he didn't realize that she had turned into a monster. She was using heroin and other drugs regularly, leaving uh, syringes in his home. He couldn't take it anymore. He had to kick her out. He, you know, he tried to get her to stop using the drugs. He couldn't. Um, but he also said she was prostituting herself regularly, and he has all kinds of evidence of that. But uh, in her in the memoirs about I mean sorry in the biographies about her, um, she admits stripping for the Japanese mafia, and then she, then for the Taiwanese mafia. It's incredible what she was doing at between ages of fourteen and sixteen years old. She you know her, uh, these biographies document her stripping, and also um, she admits prostituting you know in in Asia. So she was already a heroin addict and prostitute, and by seventeen years old. Uh, she goes and visits her father, Hank Harrison, who I interviewed for two hours, and and um, and he's in Dublin doing research for a book, and she visits him, and he incidentally, not realizing it, introduces her to a new friend who would befriend some guy who befriended him out there, named Steve O'Leary, who on Steve O'Leary's deathbed ended up admitting when he died in 2005 that he had been working for the CIA all that time. And him and his brother, Kevin O'Leary, proceeded to take Courtney Love um, to uh, London when Courtney Love was carrying a thousand hits of acid, and Courtney Love spreads the acid all over the music scene there to all the top musicians around London. 
And then she does the same thing at 17, 18 years old, 19 years old, goes to each music scene, Portland, Los Angeles, spreads drugs like candy, according to all of her biographies, you know, several biographies on her uh, tell of this. And um, so that's what she did. Then she got married to a guy named James, I think it was named James Moreland, his name was, um, who says that uh, she bragged to him about sleeping with armies, army generals in Alaska who who told her how wars were, were good for the United States. And he thought he was marrying some punk feminist, and he realized he was marrying some, like, right-wing Phil Diller. And she would have uh, people come and beat him up if he didn't do everything she said. And he ended up, you know, finally getting away from her and divorcing her, um, scared for his life. And so then she, of course, you know, inserts herself into Cobain's life, manipulates him, gets him using heroin daily for the first time in his life, and so he inadvertently promotes heroin, and you know you run into the same pattern of you got these people manipulating some of these musicians. To then they, they ends up promoting the drugs, and then when they start sobering up and getting more into the activism, which is what happened with with Kurt, because a blood test um, a month before he died, a blood test from his coma in Rome showed that he had no illicit substances in his system except for the rohypnol, the roofies that she had as her own sleep medication. And so he almost died in that incident when she obviously gave him roofies and he couldn't remember everything that happened because he was roofied. But um, so, um, you know, it was actually Rohypnol's legal in, in England as a sleep medication, and that's where she got it when her band was over there. And so a month later, you know, he, you know they say he died of uh, suicide, but um, the top, you know, president of the American Pathology, Pathology Association, Cyril Weck, says no, it was a stage, it was a murder made to look like a suicide. John Potish, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. John Potish is with us in a uh, brand new documentary based on his 2015 book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, now available. Uh, once again, John, uh, tell people how they can uh, find your documentary and rent or buy it. Yeah, so you can go to drugsasweapons.com to find out all the outlets for renting and buying, but some of them are, you can buy it through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Best Buy or rent it through places like Voodoo or iTunes or Vimeo and places like that. All right. We were talking about Tupac. Uh, died in, uh, well, it's been 20, coming up on 20, 23 years. Right. Hard to believe. In Las Vegas, uh, gunned down by all accounts by a rival uh, gang member, uh, Orlando Anderson. Uh, how does the CIA figure in this? Yeah, so... Um, you know, people, they tried to present the narrative that he was a rival gang member, but Tupac wasn't in the gang. Tupac was actually born into the Black Panther family, and uh, when he was about 17 years old, he headed a group that tried to replicate the Black Panthers called the New African Panthers, and that is a heavily hidden fact of his history. Um, but I talked to his business manager and his national lawyer, um, Watani Taihimba and Chokwe Lumumba, and got... You know, documentation of that, and uh, have him in the film talking about the New African Panthers on the radio at that time when he was 17 or 18 years old. And so then um, he left them only to um, try to present activism through his music, but um, still was involved in major activist projects such as the Black Panthers. You know, his Black Panther extended family started, you know, calling getting the Bloods and Crips gangs 
to call peace truces in Los Angeles right after, um, actually right before the, the L.A. riots and then majorly afterwards the L.A. riots, and then uh, started getting those peace truces and those turn, you know, those uh, changes to activism and stopping drug dealing going from the Los Angeles area throughout California, and then that spread nationwide. And that made, um, and Tupac was instrumental in calling bank, uh, gang peace truce picnics and getting that to happen. And uh, that was a major blow to the uh, drug dealers and launderers, the drug traffickers, such as, the, you know, of course, the CIA being the top drug trafficker. And um, it really took tons of their sales off the streets and uh, affected banks that were laundering uh, drug money in a huge way, and I show how that happened. And so um, what started as FBI uh, Latter-day COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program uh, targeting, counterintelligence program was the targeting that was found when the FBI documents were stolen from the FBI office in 1971. They found that the FBI had murderously targeted, you know, the Black Panthers and other and white activists too, but particularly the Black Panthers and, you know, Tupac's mother, uh, they, they targeted for murder at one time. But... Um, so then, you know, uh, whistleblowers, I show whistleblowers like M. Wesley Swearing in my film who talk about this and talk about how the FBI's counterintelligence program continued at least until the 1990s when Tupac was killed and uh, show all the evidence, including a top uh, police whistleblower named Russell Poole, who sadly died uh, when he was still giving evidence to the police about how he found his fellow police officers were at all levels of death row records and were drug trafficking through death row records and had set up Tupac's murder, sadly enough. So was Suge Knight involved? Well, Suge Knight, Knight, I show the evidence that he was involved. He was a very low man on the totem pole. Um, and that's why, you know, he could be in the car when the shots were coming, you know, in his direction. But there were 13 of them, of course, killed Tupac, but none of them directly uh, hit him. They say he was only grazed by either flying fragment or glass. And, you know, obviously he wasn't seriously hurt at all. Um, so, but he, all the evidence shows that he purposely drove away from the hospital, where the, the direction of the hospital, and he knew Vegas because he had, uh, played football there in college. And, uh, he also had a, uh, club there, Club, you know, uh, 662, where they were heading for a benefit show that Tupac was doing. Um, so, you know, he was involved in a low, a low level way, and the higher level people were his, um, lawyer, who was real, the real owner of Death Row Records, Dave Kenner. And then uh, his head of security was a guy named Reggie Wright Jr. And Reggie Wright Sr. was the head of uh, uh, Compton's gang police unit. And um, so I showed that they were the higher level members of U.S. intelligence. But uh, there was FBI and ATF agents in the motorcade behind Tupac when he was killed. And the guy who worked who was working for the FBI at the time, he was also Tupac's bodyguard, who turned on the FBI show and tried to get him not to go to Vegas, said he had documents to prove that they had watched his uh, Tupac's murder. And obviously, we're part of the whole uh, murder of Tupac. When I look at musicians and artists today that have been signed to major labels, they seem so controlled uh, and on script. Is, is it? Are they still being manipulated by the, the the CIA, or do they just do they want success so much that they're just willing to do and say anything? Yeah. I, I I can't say for sure. I just know that I can only give the examples, you know, that I found, you know, of uh, it's just continuing to happen into the 2000s with the Wu-Tang Clan and other musicians. Um, it just seems like there's a lot of control. There's a lot of manipulation. There's only, they only allow certain bands to get high up. Um, there's, you know, I, I can't tell 
how much it's still going on, but I imagine you know my examples are just 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 small examples of a, a larger picture of how it all works. But so much of the culture today, I find, just to be so toxic. Uh, whether it's the music or uh, the movies coming out of Hollywood, uh, how much of that is market-driven and how much of that is sort of top-down? I, th- I think it's more top-down. Uh, I really do. I mean, there's just so much. Um, I mean, you know, uh, when I talked about the Laurel Canyon scene, there was uh, Lookout Mountain Studios, uh, Dave McGowan had done research one, was was the largest self-contained music, uh, movie studio in the world, and had thousands of employees in this small Laurel Canyon area of Los Angeles, and it was an Air Force movie studio that put out 19,000 classified movies, and had top stars all sign confidentiality agreements to not say what, what they were involved in there. And I argue that a lot of the movies come out of studi- studios like that and are controlled in that way. Or propaganda movies in that way. What are you working on next, John? Now that the do- I mean, I know you got to put your feet up for a few minutes. You're entitled after putting this documentary to uh, to bed finally. But what, what's up next? Are you going to continue to to delve into this uh, this area? Well, I'm going to write. I'm writing, working on an activist novel. It's a novel that uh, covers some similar themes, but it's, you know, uh, supposedly fiction. But you know, of course, covers a whole lot of other stuff that. I, I just um, you know want to make more entertaining, you know that's on similar themes though. Any chance that drugs as weapons against us will have any sort of theatrical release? Or can we see any plans to put it up on a big screen, maybe in limited theaters? Well, sadly enough, my distributor didn't didn't go for that, and um, but it's been in some film festivals and some theaters and different places, and uh, you know I hope uh, yes that it does. So someday maybe get more of a theatrical release. I just don't know. I I still have to catch up with someone in Atlanta who said that they could show it in a theater down there. Um, I know it's actually being shown in L.A. for the Pan-African Film Festival. Uh, within the next week or two, it's being shown in London in the Fusion Festival uh, within the next two or three weeks. I know that. So it is playing in a few theaters here and there that way. But otherwise, um, I just don't know if it will be in theaters more further than that one final time give us the details on how we can watch drugs as weapons against us so thanks thanks so much Richard it's great talking to you but uh, so you can go to drugs as weapons uh, movie.com or just drugs as weapons.com either one um, and uh, see the trailer for it I meant to say of course but you can also uh, buy it at Amazon or iTunes or Barnes and Noble, or Best Buy, or Target, or um, Walmart, or you can rent it at. Uh, I think you can also rent it at iTunes and um, Voodoo and Vimeo and uh, Microsoft Xbox, Google Play, YouTube, Rent, etc. John, a great pleasure. Thanks for hanging out for the last two hours, and congratulations. Thanks so much, Richard. It's great talking to you again. Likewise, John Potash. All right, my thanks to uh, Ian and Ryan and Albert, and I'll be back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.